Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zellmer, director of KU Presents in Kutztown University. And as always, I'm with my good friends. Yes, I'll say good friends. <laughs> Kevin Maynard. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, split in the border between Iowa and Illinois. Katie. Hi, it's Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Josh. Brian's okay friend, Josh, in Marion, <laughs> Illinois, at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. And Danielle. Brian's even gooder friend, Danielle. <laughs> yeah. From the Alden in McLean, Virginia. You guys know it. All right. So before we get into this week's episode, I just, uh, for some reason, I was being nostalgic and thinking back to when ringtones were a thing. Did any of you guys use ringtones? <laughs> yes, no? Yeah. Sure. My favorite was the ring back tone. That's yeah. what I remember. Whenever you called somebody and the music played the, uh, of the ring oh, back tone that you chose. I hated that. But I'm talking about <laughs> ringtones where you could set a different uh, kind of sound for when someone called you. So like it could be a recording of their voice. It could be a recording of different music or what have you. And uh, sometimes you'd pay for special things or noises. In fact, my stepfather still uses a R2-D2 sound effect for his <laughs> all of his calls that he bought back in like, I don't know, the ancient days of cell phone technology. I, I was thinking about if I were to have ringtones for each of you, I think for Kevin right away, I thought of son of a bitch would be my ringtone for Kevin. <laughs> For Katie, it would be, and then for Josh, it would actually be Kevin doing his imitation of Josh saying, hi, I'm Josh. That would be the ringtone for Josh. That's a terrible impression of Josh. All right, Kevin, show us how to do it. Kevin, you do it. You do it. It clearly sounds more like this. Hi, I'm Josh. (laughs) There you go. I've got my ringtone. Josh, say hi, I'm Josh. Josh, do an imitation of Kevin doing an imitation of you. Let's see. Hi, I'm Josh. (laughs) Terrible. And then for Danielle, I I love when she says insert sound effects, because sometimes I play insert sound effects here. (laughs) And I do that on purpose. And I do that just for you to like giggle while you're listening to it. (laughs) But sometimes I I have noticed sometimes it it works. I do too. That's why I keep it in. So believe it or not, there's a reason I'm asking you guys this. And I'm just curious, did you guys ever use ringtones or have ringtones? What were some of the ones you might remember? Well, I definitely had a little like slide phone that was green and made of recycled plastic. And the ringtone it came with was like a tweeting bird. So <laughs> every time you get a text message, you go tweet, 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 tweet. Um, and so I did have that for a while and it became really annoying. Um, and my current ringtone that I've had for like a really long time for phone calls is the Parks and Recreation theme song. So sometimes when I forget to turn off in the office and I get a phone call, that song just blares and everyone jumps 10 feet in the air. And it's hilarious. So Back in the raging times of personalized ringtones, I intentionally set mine to be like the antique phone ringing. Okay. You were that guy. <laughs> I was that guy. And then, I don't know, for the past like eight years, my phone's been on silent. So I couldn't even tell you what my phone ringing sounds like at this point. Yeah, I, I would say mine's whatever comes pre, pre-standard, like whatever's already there. I don't think I've you've ever never You've never, ever changed your ringtone once? I think I was going to, and then I was like, there's just too many options. There I are. I'm going to stick with this. So, <laughs> so yeah, the very first time you get a cell phone and you go through and check them all, did you listen to every single one like I did and then just oh, go yeah. back to the first one? P- pretty much. Pretty much. I was like, well, clearly this was the best one. They chose it. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure every accountant I've ever met has done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it tracks. So <laughs> Danielle, what about you? So when you started asking us this, my poor old millennial brain was going back and was like, oh, no, he's going to ask what my ringtone was. (laughs) And I know that I spent longer than I should have picking one, but I really can't remember what it was. And I remember that being such a big deal. And it was like you like associated that person with like the ringtone that they had and I remember wanting to buy a ringtone, which now sounds like an absolute yes. insane thing to do. Yes. But it, they were like a dollar. <laughs> but I think you would buy like a but like it was like a mail in catalog. Like there was a lot about it that seems like really shady. And I wanted one so bad. But I do remember there's a, a mail in catalog of ringtones. <laughs> like I don't a catalog, but like it would be like in a magazine of like. How do you hear a ringtone in a magazine? I'm so confused. 
list of the songs. What was it? Scam magazine? Tell what was the name of it again? <laughs> a scam company. <laughs> it advertising in a magazine. Gotcha. Don't gotcha. you guys remember? Well, no, no do, but no. No. Would this still work? Because I'll take out some ads. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never did it because oh, okay. I was terrified of being scammed with my So check. it didn't work back then. <laughs> Wait, how were they gonna get you the the, the ring I don't tone? think I knew how scams worked. <laughs> I will send you a dollar and then I will mail you a ringtone. I was probably texted to you. I never did it. But I remember other people had cool ringtones that they definitely didn't get on their Nokia, like while they were playing Snake. Uh, so I don't really have a great way to transition this into the interview. But the reason why I asked is because ringtones are something that you had to make a choice about. And it was very personal, usually. And in this conversation with Micah Christian from Sons of Serendip, he talks about how they select their music and some of the process of how they choose their songs and so forth. And so there you go. I don't <laughs> I love it, Brian. This is it's a great tie-in. So terrible transition, but it, I think it, it was a really great conversation. I learned a lot from Micah, and I think you will too. So here is Micah Christian. Hi, my name is Micah Christian. I am the lead vocalist for America's Got Talent finalist, Sons of Serendip. Hi, Micah. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're going to dig into what you do as an artist. But first, I just wanted to kind of start with your professional journey, if we can just maybe touch on some of the highlights. Absolutely. So I've been singing my whole life, but my professional journey in music started back in 2014. Uh, with my quartet, uh, Sons of Serendip. We were a group just for the audition for America's Got Talent. That was our first performance uh, was in front of the judges. You know, we ended up placing fourth that season. And since then, we've been traveling all over the country, uh, connecting with some really beautiful people. If you don't mind, I'd like to go even further back and find out how you got the singing bug to begin with. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I actually started my musical journey on the drums. And then I was like eight years old and I started piano and fell in love with playing piano. And then in middle school is when uh, I started to sing. And it was a middle school chorus teacher that brought me aside after one of our first rehearsals. And she was like, hey, I think you have potential as a singer. And that was my first time ever hearing that. <laughs> and um, I didn't see myself as a singer. I knew I, I fell in love with it over time. She wanted to work with me. And so we, I had private voice lessons with her for a few years. And over time is just how the experience was for me with falling more and more in love with singing. Did you say that was middle school? That was middle school. Yeah. So that's a really hard time because that's during puberty when your right, voice right. is changing. Yeah. And that's, that's a difficult thing in itself. So that must have been even like especially hard for you. It was. Yeah. And, and when I first started singing, I was a bass. And then at one point, I think it was in ninth grade, I attempted a song that was in the tenor range and I was able to do it. And so my chorus teacher was like, all right, I think you're going to be a tenor next year. And so I was like, all right, great. <laughs> what were your influences? Like, did you have anyone you looked up to that you tried to emulate when you were younger? Yeah. And so I really didn't have that many vocalists that I looked up to at that time in particular, because I still didn't see myself as a singer. But music was something in your life because you saw yourself as a drummer, you said, and pianist. Yeah. Um, so were there other types of musicians, not necessarily singers, that you were listening to, looking up to? Yeah, it was a, a lot of... Uh, musicians that were at church. I was in a, a Pentecostal church growing up and where music is, is very important for the experience of the service. And some of the most talented vocalists, most talented drummers and pianists uh, I heard, I ever heard, like they were right there in you know our church community. But yeah, and then in college is when I, I joined acapella groups and got involved in an acapella group at Stonehill College where I went to school at the time. And I did musicals as well. And then joined Hyena Sound, which is a semi-pro acapella group on Cape Cod. Uh, and every summer for five summers during my college years, I um, was a part of this group and we performed 90 to 100 performances every summer. Do you still go back and visit them from time to time? Yeah, I do. So they have an alumni show every year and, you know, I'll try to make it back whenever I can for that. And I still stay connected with some of the guys that I sang with uh, during those years and they become some of my best friends. Yeah. So in around that time, I think is, is when I started to find vocalists that I really looked up to. Like India Ari was one of the, the artists that I, I really loved. And I still love her now. 
uh, she was one of the first ones that I heard that I was like, if I'm going to be a vocalist, I want to be in that kind of space where, I mean, the lyrics that, that, that she uh, writes are incredibly beautiful, but then also she comes from a, a deeper place when she sings too. And it's something that, yeah, I just really appreciated about her. That's awesome. And I know um, from listening to your story and learning about your story that you stepped away from music for a while. And you went on to volunteering and taking part in missions and doing all of these amazing things. And I don't know that we have time to get into too much of that detail, but I'd love to just hear a little bit about if you can explain like some of that period in your life. You know, I fell in love with singing, you know, more and more during those years, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue music full time at that time. I knew that I wanted it to be a part of my life, but I didn't know if I wanted it to be the central part of my life. And so I kind of moved it out to the margins a little bit and pursued other things. One thing that I wanted to do was figure out a way that I can help, you know, the world in, in some positive way. And so I was looking into service opportunities and I volunteered in Honduras for a year. And then when I got back, I ended up um, going to seminary thinking that I was going to be a pastor or a missionary or something along those lines. And then when I graduated, I really didn't know where... I was feeling led. And so my wife and I, she was in the same boat. Uh, we just decided we're going to go to do another volunteer experience, but together this time. So we decided to go to Peru. And it was during that year is when I realized that I needed to bring music to become a more central part of my life. When I brought it back, it was a different experience of, of music. Uh, it was definitely a, a deeper connection to it because it was more of, of a necessity as opposed to just being something that, you know, I could use to go after fame or, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. It was more like, no, this actually can be my, my service, using whatever musical abilities I have and sharing it and just allowing it to find the ears and the hearts it's meant to find. In Peru, there was a, a head sister that played a pivotal role in helping you come to that decision. Yes. Do you mind just sharing the story? Absolutely. In Peru, <laughs> the first six months were very difficult for my wife and I. There were a number of different things that happened during those first six months that just made it really challenging. And we were trying to figure out if we were going to leave early or not. So we set up a meeting with the head sister that we were working for. It was a Catholic organization. And we met with the sister and I asked her and I was like, you know, is our work of any value to you? You're not giving us any feedback. Uh, you know, like, what are we doing here? Like, is our work of any value to you? And she said something that that at first made me mad, <laughs> but then, but then after really reflecting on what she was saying, it was exactly what I needed to hear. So what she said was, Micah, you need to stop waiting for me or anyone else to tell you that your work is of value and that you're doing a good job and patting you on the back. And you need to look within yourself, find value in your own work and just do it. Just do it. And so for, I'd say probably a week or so, I was just angry. And then when I um, really reflected on it, it was just one day in my journal, I was thinking about those words and I really like thought about what she was saying to me. And what I realized was that there were things in my life, including music that I was waiting for others to validate and tell me that, you know, I can do it and that, you know, my work is of value. And so I decided, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take what she just shared with me and... I'm going to apply that to music. I'm going to bring it back to my life to become a more central part of my life because I love it, because it brings me joy. Um, and, and this is not going to be for ambition. It's not going to be for fame. It's going to be for love. Once I started doing that, I, I got a guitar. I started writing songs and, um, and I contacted Cordero, uh, who was a friend of mine and he's the, the, the pianist in the group. And I was like, when I get back, we're going to make music. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to make music. And what was he doing at that time? He was a lawyer. So he was actually practicing law. So he gets this message from you out of nowhere and and, yeah. and is he like, yeah, cool, let's do it. Yeah, that's what he was saying too. He's like, yeah, I I'm feeling the same thing. I, I would really love to do music. It's like I'm practicing law right now, but deep down I want to do music as well. I I'd almost say that's serendipitous, but... Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you and Cordero uh, meet in the first place? So Cordero and I met at Boston University in grad school at Mars Chapel. When we first met, we shared a similar interest in music, but we neither of us were pursuing music at the time. And so we, we became 
uh, Facebook friends and exchange information and everything. And there was a Facebook post that he did where he shared some of his music and I was blown away. And so I reached out to him and I was like, Cordero, let's get together. I would love to just like jam or work on something together. And I think around that time too, I was invited to sing at an event. And so I was like, oh, and then maybe we can potentially collaborate on the, at, you know, for this event. And so when we met, I noticed that his playing style sounded also very familiar too. <laughs> um, and so one of my influences um, that I actually didn't mention earlier um, when I first started playing piano was Yanni. Uh, this Greek composer who my dad used to love and used to share his music with me. And when I first started playing um, piano, Yanni was a big influence on me. So when I heard Cordero's music, I was I asked him, I was like, did you ever listen to Yanni growing up? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and he got so excited and started playing, you know, some of the, the, the same Yanni songs that, that were nice. familiar to me as well that I really loved. And then I started playing some of Yanni as well. And, and then um, we had a moment where we just stopped. And I said, Cordero, you and I might be the only brothers on this planet that were deeply <laughs> influenced by Yanni. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how our friendship started. And, you know, and he's been an amazing collaborator ever since. That's amazing. I, I just want to back up a little bit. So so it, you're in Peru, this revelation comes to you and you decide you want to be a singer full time. But I'm sure you know that you at that point realize you have to make some major changes in your life. Right. What were some of those changes that you were looking ahead at? And how did you go about, you know, discovering how to tackle those? I was connected to an international school in, in Cambridge so that when I got back, I had a job waiting for me um, that, you know, would help to pay the bills while, I, while I, I figured out how to do more music. So I didn't know exactly a game plan as to how I was going to go about doing this, but I knew that no matter what, I was going to sing. You know, any opportunities that I had to sing, I was going to take them because it brings me joy. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what, this can be a part of the service that I offer the world. That's it. When my wife and I got back to Boston, we were working at this school, and then I heard about the America's Got Talent auditions. At first, I was going to put together an acapella group, but I couldn't find a group of guys to do it. So then I was like, oh, yeah, Cordero has two roommates. One's a harpist, one's a cellist. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we could do something. I mean, it'll be really interesting. So then I reached out to, to Cordero and his roommates, Mason and, and Kendall, and everybody just said, yeah, let's, let's audition, see what happens. I've heard you say that you felt like you didn't have enough confidence in yourself because you'd compare yourself to others. Yes. How did you as a singer overcome that? What are, Did you gain any tools or anything that you might be able to share with someone who's dealing with that right now? When I was deciding to bring music to be a more central part of my life, that was something that came up. I was like, why did I push music to the side for so long? It was like seven years or so. A lot of it had to do with comparing myself to other people and thinking like, oh, I can't sing like that other person. I don't have the, you know, the tone like this other person. And I think that that took a toll on my self-esteem when it came to music. But when she said those words to you know, find value in your own work, what it did was it, it just helped me to focus on what I have and not to think about what other people are offering. Because what I realized is that each person offers something different, something that's unique. Not everybody's gonna connect with what I do, and that's okay. But there are gonna be some folks that really resonate with it, and then there are gonna be some other people that actually need it. And so the responsibility is just to share what you have and not worry about the results, but know that there's going to be somebody out there that needs to hear your gift. Love that. And I love your music. And I actually listen to it as a fan myself. Oh, thank you, Brian. In this world of social media and everything else, how do you deal with some troll on the internet? How do you shield yourself from that? You know, when we were in America's Got Talent, that was something that came up every now and then because, yeah, it, it's a big stage and you're going to get a lot of comments that, that come through. And I think what's been great about my journey is that it's been with a group of people. Like it's a quartet. We really enjoy each other. We lean on each other. And that's been super helpful because when a comment does come in that is not just criticizing, but, <laughs> but like really trying to take a dig, it's like then we can, you know, take it to the group and figure out if it's worth, you know, entertaining or or just letting go. And oftentimes, yeah, it's just like, we just have to keep moving mm -hmm. because we're, we're 
each one of us is, is a process unfolding, including the group. And so where we are in the process is, is not where we're going to be in, in a few years. And so it, it's just good just to keep a growth mindset and knowing that you're going to get criticism along the way. But as long as you're, you're willing to learn uh, and grow over the years, you'll be fine. Do you ever feel nervous or get the nerves before performing or during performance? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. When we got off the show... I was terrified. I actually had severe anxiety for a good eight months. Even though it went so well. Even though it went well. Yeah, because AGT is like the Super Bowl, right? You have the Super Bowl experience. But then then after that, you have to figure out how you want to stay in the league. Like, how are we going to actually build a career out of this? You know, we were doing 90 second versions of, of these songs on, on the show. But like, how do you develop uh, an actual concert from that. As a lead vocalist, I'm kind of the MC of the show too. And you know, I tell stories and try to engage the audience, but it took a long time of just fumbling through words <laughs> and you know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. trying to figure out like, how do I, how do we craft something that people would actually want to go to? That took some time of figuring out and, and getting confident in my ability to to be able to do that. I think what's helped is, is just having that growth mindset of like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to grow. Just keep learning from this experience, every new experience, even the ones that are can be embarrassing. <laughs> it's like, it's all a part of the journey. And just look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is in 10 years, you're going to be very different than you are right now. And you're going to be in a whole different place if you just take on that growth mindset. So true. Sons of Serendip started out doing cover songs and and beautiful arrangements, if I can say that, um, very ethereal to me. They feel very ethereal and beautiful. And I'm just curious, how did you guys go about choosing what songs uh, you did then? You were talking about trimming them down for television, but then building that set list. How did you come up with that? And, and I don't want to get into your original work yet, because I know you guys do originals yeah. now too, but but you started out with the cover songs and, and I'm sure with four different guys, you have four different ideas and, and how do you come together and, and agree on which ones it's going that you're settling on? In the beginning, when we first started, what we did was we would just bring a bunch of songs, make a list of different songs that we were interested in, that each of us liked. The reasons why I would choose a song for me is, is if the, the lyrics are meaningful in some way or if I can re resonate with them, because if I can resonate with them, then I'm going to be able to perform them better. And so that was a part of the process. Then also Cordero, who's the lead arranger in the group, he needed to be able to play with the chords and, you know, reharmonize um, the music. And uh, and if he couldn't find a way to do that, that was interesting then we would just pass on the song. So it was a mixture of of those two like elements that helped us to to figure out which songs we we wanted to do. And then over time, like as we built a an audience, we have reached out to to the audience as well and asked them to share with us songs that that they hear, you know, during their commute or whatever that they think would be interesting for us to to rearrange. And I think one of the, one of the things too that helped us at the beginning was we were taking songs like dance songs mm -hmm. or hard rock songs and we were turning them around with a harp cello and keyboard <laughs> and so um and I think that that was that was something that made it interesting for people so like one of the songs that we did was like Carry On Wayward Son and it's like <laughs> you know it, it, you wouldn't expect that one of the things I noticed is and it's not across the board, but you, you do also do a lot of songs that were mega hits for female artists at another time. One of my favorites is Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. Yeah. And, you know, it's just yep. so different the way you present it. And it's so beautiful. And I, I just, you know, I think interesting is the perfect word. It just draws you in and, and it's something you know and you can sing along with also because you know the other version it was popular but right. at the same time it's it's yours you know you you definitely sons of serendip definitely makes it theirs thank you i also want to get into the original work how did the original work enter the picture and then who does the writing the music the lyrics and again how does the decision whether to go with it or not happen with the group yeah so within the group we've had three songwriters because Kendall moved on to full-time ministry. Uh, now we're down to two. So it's Cordero and I who are the songwriters in the group currently. And 
we'll bring a song that we've already written to the group to see if it's something that we can actually see ourselves performing live. And so, yeah, so I've brought a couple of songs. Cordero's brought a couple of songs. And then we've also done our own compositions, too. And those have come up through improv, usually. There was a time where we were improving every day. Wow. And next thing you know, it's like these beautiful songs would come out of it. And we're like, oh, let's stop and let's figure out how to make that into an actual song that we can then perform live. And so that's happened a few times as well. It's been one of those things too, that like we've had to figure out a way to balance the originals with the covers because people still want to hear the covers. But at the same time, we also know that there's even more within us that we'd love to share. And so we balanced those out a little bit um, over the years. You've practiced, you developed, you've had things work and not work. And, and now you're at a point where you're very strong at putting together a show. I'm just curious how you pick uh, which pop hits. Is it whatever you're feeling, like the group is feeling, hey, let's do this one for this show? Or do you? does it matter like how many views or listens, you know, on social media and other places on different apps that these songs are getting like, oh, this one's our most popular song. We have to do this one. Are there decisions like that that come into to the works? Absolutely. So we we do take into account the songs that are, that are the most popular and we try to get them in there for every show. And then we also have some songs too that have a story that's connected with them. And so we try to get those in there, but we have a few that can be taken out and replaced with another song that's like on the same level. Um, so the most popular ones we keep every show um, in the audience too, like like in location. If there's a song that we know this artist that wrote this song is actually from this location, we're going to yeah, do it, yeah. you know, like that kind of yeah. thing. So those kind of decisions um, come into play. But I think what we're trying to do is create an experience for the audience. So it's not just like song, 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 but it's like we'll connect some songs together. We will tell stories, connect a few more songs together. And by the end of the show, we hope that the audience feels like they've experienced laughter, a little bit of the achiness of life as well, mm -hmm. um, some hope and inspiration and that but ultimately that they come away feeling good and feeling lifted. So bands like Sons of Serendip, they've often been described as being like a marriage. You spend yeah. so much time together and things that, that each of you do impacts the rest of the group. And obviously, I'm sure early on there's the honeymoon phase where, you know, there's no problems. But eventually when you're with people long enough in that kind of close relationship, Issues happen, and I don't want to dig into any of Sons of Serendip specific issues that that maybe you've had, but I'm assuming there's at least been one. And I'm curious, how do you guys help mitigate those internal problems or resolve disagreements if they come up? Are there any things that that might be helpful for other groups to to hear about? The most important thing that we've kept in mind is that we believe in each person that's in the group. Each person in the group is a good human being. And, and we keep that in mind, especially when we have disagreements. We've been able to lean on each other at different moments to help to see where the disagreements are happening in ways to, to work through them. At the core, though, it's remembering, like, I, I love working with this guy. I love this guy as a human being. He's like a brother to me. And so we'll, we're going to work through it. You know, even if it's a little shaky at, at this time, I know that at the core, this person is a good person. Then also remembering that there's more than one way to solve a problem. That's something that I had to learn. Uh, at first, it was really hard because I thought, no, this is the only way. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. guys, we need to do this. I'm telling you. And I would really push my agenda, having had to let go a number of times uh, and then seeing how the results turned out. It's like, oh, yeah, that was actually a better idea. Or <laughs> or that's another way that, that we could have done this. Sure. And it worked out perfectly. So... I think keeping that in mind helps to loosen up the grip on your agenda, um, knowing that these folks in this group are good people, but then also there's more than one way to solve a problem. Yeah, it's, it's easy to get into those traps sometimes, and uh, that's great advice. I understand that you went to the auditions for America's Got Talent as a group, but at some point you got picked up and, and got representation. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how that relationship came about and and how that works for the group? So after America's Got Talent, we got picked up by IMG Artists and we were with them for, I believe, four years. And then we got picked up by Concerted Efforts out of Boston. And then 
live arts and attractions. Were all of these exclusive deals? Yes, they were. Can can you explain for maybe an, a young and upcoming artist, just quickly just explain what that means? With the exclusive deals, you work solely with that agent as your primary agent. So uh, you wouldn't reach out to another agent and say like, hey, can you book me gigs? Because you're exclusively with this particular agency. IMG Artists, it was exclusive. Concerted Efforts, it was exclusive. And then with Live Arts and Attractions, it's also exclusive. And we got connected with them originally through Live on Stage, which uh, is the Community Concert Association branch of Live Arts and Attractions. Uh, and we did a run of shows with Live on Stage and had an incredible experience with them. And, and I think that that's where we began to form a relationship with the folks at, at Live Arts and Attractions. We just fell you know, right into to place with them because it, it, we had already had a relationship with them. We already loved them. And it's been a, a wonderful experience that we've had with them. So, Is it for a period of time that you sign up with these uh, people? I'm just curious, how do you go from one agency to the other without burning bridges or creating any kind of hard feelings? I think a lot of it has to do with just communication and just being honest, but also grace filled, you know, just knowing that everybody's working hard and sometimes some partnerships, you know, they only last a season and then it's like, all right, let's find out if there's another partnership that would be a good fit for this moment. We've had great relationships with every agency that we've worked with. IMG, I saw them at APAP and had a chance to talk with them. And that was great. I saw the folks at Concerted Efforts as well. And, um, and I think, yeah, it's just, it's just being kind as well. Um, you know, when you are making a break like that, it's sometimes it can be just a mutual thing where it's like, yeah, this isn't working, you know, and, and that makes it easier. Um, but at the same time, you make these kinds of decisions and act on them in a way that is kind and grace filled. When we moved on to live arts and attractions, because we had had the experience with live on stage, it was really easy because we had built up a great relationship with them and they they work really hard for us and we were just really grateful for them. So we met in person for the first time uh, at the Midwest Arts Expo in Indianapolis this past fall and it just got me thinking about your role as an artist attending conferences. Is it primarily just to showcase your work to other presenters like me that that want to book a show or do you have other reasons for attending art? You know, do you get more out of conferences than just that? I am also a part of Napama. I'm on the board at Napama. And uh, Napama has a number of different things that they offer during the conferences. And so like I go as a board member in Napama, but then also, you know, I'm showcasing with uh, my group. We have an agency that we work with, but we're self-managed. So I think that being in the, in the conference space in that way is helpful with just, you know, connecting with, with different folks in the industry and building those relationships. And it's more of like an all hands on deck situation where you have the agents who are working for you who are there, but then also it's like when you're there, you're there to connect as well and to lead people towards your agent. <laughs> and so I wear a couple of different hats in the industry and, you know, as an artist, self-repped artist, but then also um, as a board member of Napama. Uh, and folks, you know, if you're interested in learning more about Napama, <laughs> it's definitely something that is worth, you know, being a part of. So I, I hope we have artists tuning in and listening right now because that is very important. It makes a big difference. Obviously, agents do great work and they alone get a lot of bookings, but it helps so much. I know when I've had relationships with both the agent and the artist, it's helped me, you know, make decisions quicker and so forth and, and get to know you better. And so I, I think that's really great, solid advice. I mentioned showcases a moment ago, and we kind of talked about that a little bit on the podcast, but we really haven't heard from the artist perspective. With a showcase at these conferences, you get such little time, you get very little production value. How do you approach from an artist standpoint, how you're going to decide how, what you're going to present and you know everything that goes into a showcase in such a small window like that? That is a very hard thing to do <laughs> <laughs> because what we try to do is create an experience during our shows. It's not just about like entertainment for us. So to have like 15 to 20 minutes or so to, to do that is really, really hard. And we, we've had trouble with staying within those time frames. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see like flashing lights and all kinds of stuff and folks like <laughs> ready to pull us off stage and stuff. But um, what we try to do is like pull in some songs that we know 
that are our most popular songs. We have like Somewhere Only We Know, Carry On Wayward Son, and then we try to put in an original as well, um, just to show a little bit of diversity. And, and we have an, an up-tempo original called Love You Still. And then Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen is probably my favorite song to perform. And I think part of it is because of just the depth of the lyrics and it's just such a beautiful and meaningful song. And, and also everybody knows it too. We try to, the best we can, bring in some songs that will help create the experience, like a touch of the experience that um, we try to build, you know, for the actual show shows. So, but it's hard. It's really hard <laughs> and stressful. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine. Mike, I know you listen to the podcast, so you know that I have a time machine. Yeah. And yep. we always bring people back. And and I want to bring you back to before you went off to do your missionary work and and travel and leave music for a while. And just curious what you would say to Micah at that point in, in your life. Mm. This is a question I've asked other people. And <laughs> um, so I would tell that Micah, because I wouldn't change anything from the experience because I think that it has shaped the way that I approach music. So I, I wouldn't take anything out of those years, um, I would encourage him to keep singing no matter what and to not compare himself to other people, but just to share his gift, the gift that he has, just share it. And because I think it would have helped a lot emotionally because music has a way of helping me to recenter. And I think that would have been helpful during those years just to have a little bit more peace internally, you know, through the process. And I think that if I just kept singing, it would have helped to quiet, you know, my inner self down. So, Mike, I heard you tell the story um, about your 2014 audition uh, where Sons of Serendip arrived at Madison Square Garden. You had a, a cello and a harp and you yep. show up at the security desk for America's Got Talent. And the woman there says, oh, the basketball game is that way. I, I, can, right, you know, yeah. I can only begin to imagine <laughs> what, what that was like. And that's something that, um, you know, I understand happens on a daily basis for people of color. But I'm just curious, because you are four men of color that are classified as um, classical crossover artists, has that ever come into your existence in a professional setting? It's something that every now and then comes up, but I think we expect it. Like we know that that it's coming where we'll get miscategorized or there will be, you know, certain assumptions that are made or popular ideas um, that are out there that people will try to put us into those boxes. When we first got off of America's Got Talent, you know, we had folks who were kind of telling us, oh, yeah, you need to add more thump into your music. You know, you need to, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah, but no, we, we really just want to do what is authentic to us. Another thing you mentioned earlier about how we fit into the classical crossover category, like that's how we're categorized. And the classical crossover world has embraced us. We've collaborated with other classical crossover artists. And for those of you who don't know, like classical crossover, it's you'll take popular music and rearrange it with classical instruments. And that's become something that's been super popular over the years. Like in Bridgerton, you hear a lot of classical crossover arrangements of popular music and in like film and TV, you'll hear that a lot. And so when we first charted on the billboard charts, uh, we actually checked off that we, you know, fit into the classical crossover genre, but uh, for whatever reason, they didn't want to place us there. Whoever it was that called us had, you know, he shared that he didn't think that what he was hearing sounded like classical crossover. And so we'd asked him like, so, where exactly do you think we fit? And he said, well, I can put you into R&B. And we were like, well, we don't really fit there either. <laughs> so, but we felt like we were definitely closer to the classical crossover yeah. genre. And the way you describe the classical crossover, I mean, it sounds like exactly what you yeah. guys are. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that how doesn't we felt make sense well. to me, but right. But so what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so we had placed in, in 12 other categories. And, um, and so we were like, all right, well, we'll just continue on in those other categories. 12 categories? Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a lot, Micah. That's amazing. <laughs> no, we, like, we were really grateful. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And so we were like, all right, for right now, we'll just stay genreless. And eventually we'll get, you know, our chance to, to get placed into that category, into classical crossover. And so we know that Every now and then we're going to get miscategorized and that's just a part of the journey. 
but it's been a great way to build bridges because we know that with what we create, we'll have access to certain communities too that other kinds of music might not have access to. We've been in some communities where folks have said like, we haven't actually had real encounters with black men before. This is meaningful for this community, you know, for a number of different reasons. But one of the the main reasons is, is just to have this positive interaction. And so it's an experience for all of us to, you know, to and it helps to build that bridge between us and, and all kinds of different communities. But we do appreciate our uniqueness too. Like we know that we're turning things in an interesting way. And, it, and it's authentic. It's not like something that we're putting on or whatever to make a statement. It's like, no, this is who we are. This is, this is the music that we create. And it's from our hearts. That has helped to actually enrich the journey. It sparks conversations too um, with people, you know, from all different backgrounds. So thank you so much for letting me ask that. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem, right? <laughs> is there any other topic or something that you've learned that could be helpful for a new artist or someone new to the industry? That we didn't get to so th there was some advice that a friend of mine gave to me that he learned from bobby mcferrin <laughs> and um and and what he said was authenticity attracts authenticity oftentimes especially because of social media again we're back to the comparing you know thing like we try to be like other people and i would say that there is a lot already built within you that needs to be shared. And I would focus on that and share it from the heart, share it in a way that's as authentic as possible and know that there's a place for you in the industry. So you don't have to copy other people. There's a lot within you that you can share that people will need. I love that. We're out of time, unfortunately, and actually had to skip a bunch of questions, but I always have to ask this last, what is your favorite thing about the industry, the arts industry today? The way that it brings people together from all different walks of life. That's one thing that I've really appreciated about the journey with the group is that I get a chance to connect with people through the arts uh, who have very different life experiences than I do. We have a way of connecting that is very human. It's not you know, there's no politics involved. There's no, there's, it's just like human to human. We're sharing from the heart. And we feel like we've also received from the heart from other people along the way. And that kind of genuine human connection is something that the arts provide a space for. And I'm grateful, so grateful to be, be in the arts industry um, for that reason. Micah, thank you so much for your time. It's been great getting to know you a little better. And I look forward to the next chance we bump into each other at a conference. Yeah, Ryan, thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, Brian, I actually want to lodge a, a formal complaint um, about this interview. Um, so I don't know how Please somebody casually... <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Is that, is that the ring back? Hello? <laughs> Is anybody there? Uh, Brian, I don't Please know hold. how somebody... <laughs> your caller number 18th in line. We thank you your for call your is call. important yes. to us. You go ahead, Kevin. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs> I like that you're like somebody's got to start this <laughs> as soon as somebody does. Well, I, I felt some criticism coming, so I, I, oh, I had to cut oh, that it's, off. It's, it's coming in real strong From the formal now. complaint part? Yeah, I can see why you thought that. I don't know why you feel that way. I'm just curious, like, how does somebody casually say that they placed fourth in America's Got Talent and that that was their first time performing in front of an audience? And not go on. I was like, wait a second. I rewound that probably three times going, no, I, I had to have misheard that. <laughs> and then they were, they were, we didn't even get into, but they were brought back for the champions episode and did really well on that too. Yeah. Right off the bat. I mean, just 
completely blew me away. But also I will say that I am looking forward to meeting Micah at a future conference or seeing a show because he sounds like the most delightful person. I, Kevin, I had the same reaction when I heard that too. I was like, wait, what? Like it just, it was astounding to me as well. And I think just speaks to the talent that those four guys have innately and how easily they were able to mesh. And Brian, I definitely chuckled at your little serendipity joke um, during the course of the conversation. I knew Kevin would laugh at it, but I'm surprised by you, Katie. Oh, no, I definitely giggled. Um, But I do, I honestly, it it is a great name for the group because it really does seem like that this, this quartet was meant to be and the four of them came together the right time, the right moment, the right talent. Um, And it's such a joy Thinking back, you know, that was 2014 and to see the success that they've had since then and to be able to build their career as touring artists is, you know, just like actually really joyful for me. We had them in our venue a few years ago and they put on just a terrific show. Um, So but yeah, Kevin, I caught that, too. And I was like, what? How, how is that possible? I know. I sometimes sometimes I think we're like talking with people at conferences and you don't really like take in like how remarkable especially some of the artists, but like everyone is. And then you hear somebody tell their story like that and you're just, oh man, I listened to this a few times as well. Um, I felt like I could relate to him so much when he was telling the story um, about the head sister in Peru, you know, about not waiting for somebody to tell you that your work has value and that you should do it even if it doesn't. I can understand so in such a real way, being ang- so angered by like that kind of statement, uh, like as somebody that just like, I don't need a lot of valuation or feedback, but like, I always feel like I need a little, I just need to know, like, I need some kind of feedback and to get that kind of feedback in that situation and really wanting to see the service that you're doing in the world be appreciated and have value and and you're trying to figure out how it is that you fit into that cycle when he was talking about that you know just being frustrated and and mad I like I felt like I related to him so much thank you for saying that I think it's also like such a natural reaction I caught that too and I have you know reflected on it a lot and thinking about how like a lot of times people will say something like that to you and you do get upset in the moment because it's actually what you really truly need to hear but just as, you know, he took time to process that and realize that, like, just remember thinking to myself, oh, isn't that always the case? You know, those people in your life that really do see you more clearly than you see yourself and you speak truth to you. Sometimes you don't always like it, but then you come to understand that, like, that's what you needed to hear in the moment. So there were lots of little nuggets like this sprinkled throughout the whole interview. So I just wanted to say thank you to Micah for sharing that and lots of other wisdom um, and real experiences in the course of your conversation, Brian. So my question with this interview is how two guys who are influenced by Yanni find each other unintentionally. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I mean, I think it's obviously, it's a beautiful thing that they found each other's music and then, and then just through hearing each other play could hear that influence and then discovered that because of that. And I, and I think that's, it's beautiful how much, they clearly click as musicians and artists um, that they could discover that through hearing a piece of music that wasn't Yanni, but being able to hear the undertone of the influence. I, I found that as a beautiful part of this interview. I also realized while listening to this episode that I have no idea how the billboard charts work. <laughs> and like <laughs> the thought yeah. that, they wouldn't classify you under the category that you yeah, classify yeah. yourself as <laughs> yes. is well, incredible. And that, that further than that, that R and B is essentially used as a, a racial catch all within the billboard chart is, is a problem all on its own. You know, this is something to Danielle's point. I, you know, I don't know a lot about that either. And I am, I'm going to make it a point to do some research or learn something more. And like, cause I don't know really anything about how that works either. Listening to their music. It's very clear. They're not R and B and for them to be classified as R and B is, is clearly something to, pointing to the race of the players. Yeah. Somebody saw a photo. Yeah. I mean, Josh, to your point, if you want to make something fit, you'll find a way to make it fit. But it doesn't mean, you know, that it's correct. And I feel like when you hear a story like this, it just, I mean, it slaps you in the face, even in an unconscious way. 
it's one of those ways that we don't see the effects of racism every day. So hearing stories like that, it just elevates it so much of like, of why this is still a topic and something that we need to talk about. Another moment that really struck me in your conversation, Brian, was when they were talking about being a band and you know, not getting along or trying to make decisions in conflict management and conflict resolution. I just thought there was some really thoughtful dialogue there and really appreciated him sharing that because it, you know, you're working so closely with people and people in the arts. We have big personalities and big ideas. And sometimes we do have conflict. So I really appreciated that and took a lot away from that part of the conversation and thinking about how I relate with, you know, friends and colleagues that really touched me. And I was been thinking a lot about that too. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Katie, because I um, actually asked that selfishly because we're a group and we work together. So I hope you are all listening closely <laughs> to Micah and you will now do what I say from now on. So. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's what I, I think heard. That's what he Brian's said. always I'm right. I think that's it's always yeah, my way. Yeah. <laughs> I think honestly, just to, to piggyback off of what Katie was saying is I, I just love his outlook on, on life, the business and, and everything. I mean, he has an incredible mindset and the phrase we are a process unfolding, I thought was absolutely incredible. And it's been, I think I've repeated that to myself multiple times since, since listening to it, because it's just, it's such a good phrase and such a good reminder that like we are all evolving and all changing and, and, you know, typically on a, on a trajectory towards improvement. So that's something I, I love talking with Micah because I've had several one-on-one -on -one conversations with him now and we've gone into some deep subjects and every time I speak with him, I, something he says like just clicks in me and I'm like, Oh, I got to write that down. Cause that's a great, quote. And honestly, by time, when I think about it, by the time I'm done with all my conversations, I'd have like a book of amazing Micah quotes. So Micah is just a, an incredible human being with so much to share to the world that I hope the world listens to and learns from as much as I am. And I can't wait to get a chance to talk with him more the more I see him down the road. And I hope you all got something out of it too. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Um, There's no business like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I think this intro is just going to help everybody appreciate <laughs> oh my God. how wonderful the interview actually is. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Yes. That is so fabulous. So great. I love it. Really it. Especially your explanation of how this isn't connected to anything. However, I talked to Micah Christian. And I thought like handheld chicken wasn't connected to anything. I know. It's this not. Is, it's handheld. This is pretty much as connected, <laughs> connected tissue as that one. Do you think there's a chicken somewhere eating a handheld Josh? <laughs> In some alternate universe. Like I just saw your finger. Like... <laughs> Now I remember you said it you got me. At it. <laughs> I talked about handheld chicken too much. <laughs>